This is the Southern Spines Podcast. Hello, I'm Allison Law, and today is September 24th, 2012. Our guest is New York Times bestselling author Jocelyn Jackson. Jocelyn has five published books, beginning with Gods in Alabama. Then we have Between Georgia, The Girl Who Stopped Swimming, Backseat Saints, and Coming Out Tomorrow in Paperback, A Grown-Up Kind of Pretty. Her novels have been translated into a dozen languages, have twice been selected as a number one book sense pick, and have twice been shortlisted for the Townsend Prize for Fiction, most recently for Backseat Saints. A former actor, Jocelyn has received listener and critical praise for her narration of the audio versions of her novels, something we talk about today. And in fact, you'll hear us both use the word voice a lot during this interview. Well, thank you for joining us today, Jocelyn Jackson. Oh, Allison Law, thank you for having me. We want to talk about A Grown Up Kind of Pretty today because it came out in January. Yes. But now everybody can get it and tuck a few copies in paperback. That's right. Into their backpacks now. Absolutely. They're small. You should like tuck a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you and I know each other, and you know that I've been going to school lately, and I've been reading about how books come into being, Mm -hmm. and um, I wondered for you how your books, what what was the germ or the seed that starts most of your books? Does it start (laughs) with um, a person, a place, or a thing, a story? It has a verb. I nouns suck. (laughs) Um, My favorite answer to that question is like where do novels come from my favorite answer is sometimes when a mentally ill person and a ream of paper love each other very very much yeah um because that's that's really true Uh, they they come out of trying to with your limited everything's trying to make sense of the world um you know it's a way to engage with a question or questions using story which like i can't I can't sit through a sermon, but I'll listen to parables all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it always starts with the character. It always starts with people. It always starts with the human element. So does it come to you as a, a voice? We're de- I'm definitely interested in character voices. Um, voice is something I write my way into the voice, which means I throw away a lot. Like I, I have a, before I ever start writing, usually most of the time I write about characters I've known for, for years that I've been imagining and playing with and putting in different situations. Like the characters I just thought of, I don't know when or if I'll write about them. It's people I've been thinking about for a long time and they sort of clot up in little groups with other imaginary friends. Like that's my go-to setting when I'm bored is to invent people and think them through things. That's how I get through driving and brushing my teeth and vacuuming and I gotcha. So who came to you first from a grown-up kind of pretty when you were vacuuming? It was Mosey. Mosey happened first and big grew out of her. I liked the idea of these really short generations and the product of those short generations. That was the first thing I ever thought of was a, a family that the generations were 15 years apart. So the grandmother would only be 45, which is still, um, speaking as a 44 year old woman, romantically viable <laughs> absolutely amen sister uh-huh. you know she's not she's not a grandmother person at 45 that's really that's not grandmother age that's mom aged or single person mm-hmm. age 45 is not 
a meemaw. No. Um, and then the mother would be 30, and then the daughter would be 15. And I thought about Mosey, I thought everybody would be so invested in getting this child to 16, not pregnant. And so I thought of this kind of trier, like a striver, like she just wants to do a good job and she's um, not that girl. Like I also thought she would be less physically developed, like not even really the hormones running yet, kind of a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. And so like everything they're worried about is not even on her radar. She's never even been kissed. But she's been so helicopter parented on the issue of her sexuality that I pictured her like when she gets stressed out about a chemistry test, she's a virgin, and yet she will go and pee on these pregnancy tests just to see that window be white. It's not you. You're not your mom. You know, like that. Yeah. It does lead to some pretty frank and interesting discussions at birthday time when they're, <laughs> when they're cutting the cake, you know. Now, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Her, parents, her, her parents are her mother and her grandmother. There are no men in the, the picture as far as raising, which is usually the case when you get pregnant at 15. 15-year-old boys are six. I guess bigs. Let's see, uh, the, the generations are big, Jenny, Jenny Slocum, who's 45, then Liza, who's 30. And I guess Jenny's boyfriend, or the boy that she snuck off with at a party, was 16 or 17. So that's not a real, it's not an age where a young man dreams of marriage, fatherhood, responsibility, and getting a job with health insurance. Mm -hmm. No, it's yeah. not. So you have, we've talked about the two voices that came to you first, Big and Mosey. But then I think you were reluctant to kind of uh, develop that third voice in the book, the voiceless um, Liza. I think reluctant is a gentle way to say it. I absolutely refused. I was terrified of writing Liza. I was so invested in not letting Liza speak that before the book even begins, she has a stroke and she cannot talk. And because Big and Mosey were like, Liza is where the, the sort of the dark, chewy heart of this novel. And I had just finished Backseat Saints, which is probably um, the darkest book I've ever written. It's a, like a joyride into hell kind of a book, <laughs> a cross country. I, I, I love it. I, I'm, I guess that's gross. Love it too, so yeah. Well, it's gross, but. I, on the other hand, I spend usually about two years of my life writing each of these books. So if I didn't love it, that would be so pathetic. Like, why would I waste two years of my life? So, but it is a dark book. And after it, I wanted to write, I kept saying to my editor, this is my springtime book. This is my funny book. And it's funny. And Big is funny. And Mosey is hilarious. And they're charming. And they, like... Big is 45, and, and she lost her girlhood raising her daughter, and she lost her young womanhood raising her daughter's daughter. And at 45, she really gets this sort of second chance to experience first love. Like, you would think that, that you know, in a book where you're going to have first love, it's going to be Mosey, but mm -hmm. Mosey's not interested. It's it's Jenny. It's mm -hmm. Big. And... um. And so, like, that was really fun to do. And then I have this 15-year-old who's on this wild adventure to find out her identity and who she is with her best friend, Roger. And they were fun. And so I just shut all the darkness up inside of Liza, gave Liza a stroke, set her in the corner of the kitchen. Shh! You know. And um, 
my best friend and my writing partner for many years. Uh, probably, I think, one of the most brilliant writers that will come out of my generation, Lydia Netzer. Um, she read the book, as she has read all my books, and she said, this is really funny and charming and it's completely heartless. You are just being, you're having a fun time and everything that you're actually interested in, you've stuffed down inside of Liza and you, you have to let her talk or you don't have a book, you just have a, you just have a kitten. <laughs> you just have a little fluff and buzzes kitten and Woo. it's not what you want. Tell it's, me how you really feel, Lydia. Yeah, Lydia is not a punch puller. <laughs> so I said to her, okay, but I've already given her a stroke and she has a stroke. How am I supposed to let the stroke victim talk? And Lydia said, well, that's not really my problem. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, enjoy that. And that what it was really, that was the best part of the book for me was figuring out how to let Liza speak. And they ended up like... I couldn't just write in Liza. Everybody's narrative changed because even though it's told in three voices, it is a single story. Like each narrative pushes forward in a single story. It just picks up where the other leaves off. It's not like concurrent narratives of different people with different lives. They are telling one tale. So I had to make room for Liza to tell parts of it and I had to let her narrative bleed into the other two so that it would be a, a whole thing. and. So it changed the whole book, and very much. I mean, now it's not. A, it's not. It wasn't a book that was like a breather for me, where I just get to, wee. It, it's it's a book I'm actually proud of. So you have these three really strong characters yes. who are telling your story, but then you have um, two pretty big male characters in this book too. Yeah, Mosey's best friend Roger is may be my favorite character in the book. I love him. He's this little big-headed, weaselly kid. Um, Jenny doesn't really care for Roger. She calls him the evil fetus. Yeah. Because <laughs> she, you know, she doesn't like boys around Mosey. She knows that yes. that ends with somebody pregnant, but Roger's not going to get anybody pregnant anytime soon. Yeah. God bless him. <laughs> um, and they are, you know, they are just very, very good friends. And, um... They have their own language, and they have their own uh, everything. They have their own references, and they complete each other's sentences. And he is, you know, super sleuth, investigative squirrel. Like even when when she would back down, Roger pushes on because he he's got that kind of mind. And I think he's hilarious. He was so much fun to write. Mm -hmm. And then there is a love interest, um, big. The, I, I said it's a love story, so there's Lawrence, who is a cop, and he's a flawed rock. Um, I, he is, I don't know, I can, I guess I can see a little bit of my husband in him. I, one of the criticisms that I get is that, um, I've heard before about my books, is that my, sometimes my male characters are too nice, people don't believe them. I've heard that about Lawrence, too, but Lawrence is a much bigger jerk than my husband. <laughs> so, I mean, and my dad is that way, too. And I think there are men like that who are really, I mean, he doesn't do everything perfectly. He makes some pretty big mistakes in the book and some pretty big mistakes in his life. But I think that Lawrence wants, I think Lawrence's driving force is justice and doing the right thing. And I think there are men like that. I'm married to one. I gave birth to one. Yeah. 
So we've talked about the figurative voice of your characters in the book, but you also lend your real voice to your books now. I do. I read my audiobooks, which I love. I love getting to do that. I, I was... I was very much involved in theater and acting and playwriting and um, did a lot of voiceover work when I was younger, and so I wanted to do that. And, you know, they very seldom let authors do that because a lot of us aren't very good at it. Um, How do you prepare for that? Oh, well, I mean, if I'm reading one of my books, Mm -hmm. it's I don't. There's no need for it because... One of the things I do in revising is read the book aloud several times to catch rhyming words. And so, I mean, I have a really good idea of how it's going to sound out loud. And I don't necessarily, like, for me, the biggest prep work is the voices, like character voices, because I don't necessarily read the dialogue with character voices. I just want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Although I do a little bit. Even when I read to myself, I... Characters will have different inflections and stuff, but you have to do more than that when you're reading for an audio. Yeah, especially when you're reading the male parts. You have yeah. to do a little bit. I don't, yeah, you know, the, the first time I read an audiobook, I was really trying to do male voices. I had a really good director, and he said, um, you know what, quit that. Women, you just sound fake and wrong. You know, you just have to use your voice. It's your voice. Give him inflection. You can take it into your lower register. But, don't try to go down here. You know, you can't do it, and you're going to sound inauthentic. Use your own range. And, you know, if you've ever heard a big baritone man reading the women in a book, you know, reading an audiobook, you just you just have to let that go. I'm not going to, like, morph into a man suddenly and be able to... Right. <laughs> but you make them sound like themselves, mm-hmm. you know. You get the inflection right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the readers kind of dig you because you got, what, this year you were the Audible best reviewed by the users of Audible. Yeah. That's kind of nice, huh? Yeah. And as you said, you're actually doing, are you a voiceover artist for hire? You're actually doing other books now? Um, Well, I did one. Lydia Netzer's first novel came out, Shine, Shine, Shine. And um, I loved this book. I loved it. Um. She's been writing it for 10 years. I've watched it develop into just something extraordinary. And I, I wanted to read it. I didn't want another actor. There, there are sentences in there that I didn't, that I knew how important they were. And I was afraid somebody else might not get it and they wouldn't read it right. And, but I just went on a mad campaign with the agent and the editor. And like, I was, oh, I was gross about it. Like, I've got a, for my work in audiobooks, I've been nominated for the Audi, which is sort of like the Oscars. Um, I mean, it's really funny. When I was nominated, the other nominees were David Sedaris, Maya Angelou, um, I think Whoopi Goldberg, uh, and um, Cokie Roberts. <laughs> like, which one of these things is not like the other? So, you know, that was kind of, like, my editor was like, this is one of those cases where you just have to actually be happy to be nominated because look at who's in this category. It's not happening. But that, and, like, I've won a listen up award from Publishers Weekly, and I've, um, just some of the things like that. And so I was, if not, I was like... I had street cred. By the way, I don't know if you know, but just the so uncomfortable, you know, when you're, I don't know if you know this about me. But I wanted it so bad that I did it. I did everything I could and Lydia called. And they were really like, 
Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I got to do it. And the really cool thing is just today, if you go to the Publishers Weekly blog, you can, um, it's the audiobook review from Publishers Weekly came out today. And it is starred and it is, it made me cry. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> I was so happy I cried because she, knew, I, I guess whoever listened to it could tell what a labor of love it was for me. Yeah, because I know that the two of you were on the phone going, you know, is this right for Maxon? And what yeah, about, you know? it was really nice to know her because I could call her and we could, I, I made her read pieces of it to me just so I could get an idea of how she heard the sentences in her head and I worked in all the voices with her. But I mean, I, for me to work in audio is actually, I'm an outside in actor. I think we have an easier time than a method person would have with audiobooks. I, I mean, that's how you do the voices. You get a posture and a facial expression and if I can remember the posture and facial expression that goes with the character, I can pull any character up, any voice I've ever done. Because, you know, I believe in you get the body in the right shape and the feeling follows. And so I would find a quintessential posture and expression for each character. And I, for me, that's how I, I approach reading my own books. That's how I, that's how I would approach any audio job, quite frankly. And um, so, yeah, I hope I'll get to do it some more. I'd like to read other audio books. I, I... I flip and love it. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. So you know that Southern Spines is, um, you know, this online community that we're building. So that we're talking about Southern authors like yourself and books that are set in the South, like mm -hmm. all of your books are at this point. Um, have you been reading any good books that kind of fit into the, those categories lately? Yes, I have. I'll tell you. I I just I'm just about halfway through an ARC for a book that'll be coming out next year called Look Away, Look Away, Make a Note. It Ooh. This guy is a voice. He's spot on. It's so good. It was hard for me to, like, set it down and come here to talk to you today. I was reading it with a cat on me. Thank you for making such a sacrifice. It was hard. Sorry. It's a really freaking good book. <laughs> um, that's my favorite. My Probably in the last few years, my favorite Southern novels that I've read are Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tommy Franklin, Tom Franklin. Um, I've liked all his books. I think he is a major talent, but Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter was a breakthrough novel for him. I just thought it was phenomenal. And then there's another book that was written by a Yankee. <laughs> Which I was very insulted when I heard about this book because she has she's a Yankee and she has Flannery O'Connor as a character. Mm, uh -uh. That's two strikes. Uh -uh. Yeah, and like they sent it to me for a blurb, and I went into this book like with my nostrils flared and my lip curled. Like, well, I will give it a few pages, but I'm sure this is terrible. And like going into a book with that mindset, it has to be one hell of a book to win you over. Lord, she won me over. It's called A Good Hard Look. It's fantastic. Um, more recently, I read a debut that I really liked. It's called um, The River Witch. Have you read that? Yes. Really? I, I like how she is... She's not afraid to do these sort of sudden spurts of real visceral things happening in the middle of this sort of otherwise dreamy narrative kind of it's a weird tonal thing she does that I really dig yeah and then um you know there's southern writers who've been writing for a long time who I just wait for their next book 
Like you just like Mark Childress, for example, is one of those. Or um, his, if you haven't read Georgia Bottoms, <laughs> you should read Georgia Bottoms. <laughs> oh Lord, it is great. And um, like then there's people that I think of as Southern writers, like Michelle Richmond. I'm I'm I wish anytime if she has a book come out and she hasn't in a couple of years, I really want my next Michelle Richmond book. They're all set in California, but. She's from the Gulf Coast. I didn't know that about her, but there was a sensibility to her books that I just really responded to. And then I found out she was Southern, and I was like, oh, yeah. But she's lived in California for many years, so she's writing, like, expatriate fiction. So, like, there are, there are authors that I think of as Southern writers that I just wait for. Do you think that there are some common misconceptions or that people have these preconceived notions of what Southern literature means? Well, I think there's... I think that there's a big, broad band of what Southern literature means. I mean, I think, and I think if you like X and you get Y, you get mad at it. You know, I get a lot of Goodreads reviews that say things like, I, I thought this was going to be a sweet, funny Southern book, and I got 20 pages in, and I discovered the F word, and I know that Miss Jackson is not a Christian. Um... <laughs> Because there is this kind of tradition of these very sweet, kind of funny, out there, you know, we crazy Southerners do a bunch of yeah, stuff. Say, and then say, bless your heart. Bless and your laugh. heart. And those yeah. are, I love those books. I love those books. And then there is, um, then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have Tom Franklin who's, you know, if you've ever read Smunk, you're probably in therapy. It's a brilliant <laughs> book, but it is just black-hearted, visceral, chewy book. Um, and then I think if, you know, if you're looking for that, you're, you're going to, I don't think you're going to like my books either because I sort of live in between. I love the grotesque, and I... I'm very interested in the fallout from violence, and I'm, I'm not sweet, <laughs> but I am funny. So I think a lot of people come to me for one extreme or the other and end up with whatever it is I do. And I think that like trying to, I think that Southern literature is a spectrum. You know, on the one end you have Smunk, which I loved, and then on the other end you have The Wisdom of Hair, another book I'm reading right now for a blurb that I'm just loving. It's it's so well written. She has a voice. You know what I mean? And it's, but it's funny. Well, I mean, there's some stuff going on. It's the South. Everybody's mentally ill and we all drink too much and whatnot. But, um, so, so it's not like she's skimming over the surface or afraid of anything. But the main purpose of this book is to invite you in to this very warm woman's life. And, it is a joyride. I'm really loving it. So, and I like both of those books, and I want to be able to read both of those books, and I want to be able to say this is what Southern fiction looks like. It looks like a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> That's very inclusive of you. Oh, I like it all. I like that stuff. I like all the stuff about my. I don't like it when it gets like. What I don't like is. I guess that was why I was so defensive about a good, good hard look. Like if you're outside of it. You better be really careful. You better be really careful talking about my South as an outsider because I, and maybe it's because I lived as an expat. 
you know, I, I didn't realize what a culture we were and I didn't realize, I didn't realize how freaking weird we were until I lived in Chicago for seven years and just wanted to go home. <laughs> well, I loved, you know, the winters were hard, but Chicago's great. I love the theater. It's a great foodie town, but I didn't want to live there forever. It was like a fun yeah, journey, but this is home. And also, you know, the world is amalgamizing. That's not a word. The word, uh, the world is, um, they, uh, we're melting potting. We're melting potting, We're melting Allison. potting. You do like a verb. I do like a verb. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to cozy up with a gerund or two. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us, oh, Jocelyn no, thank Jackson. Thank you for having me, Allison Law. You'll be glad to know that Jocelyn is hard at work on a new novel entitled Someone Else's Love Story, which is expected to come out in late 2013 or early 2014. In between revisions on that novel, she is making her first appearance at the South Dakota Book Festival this weekend, which is September 28th through 30th in downtown Sioux Falls. If you're in the metro Atlanta area, you can see her on October 9th at the Book Miser in Roswell, Georgia. For more information on her author appearances or to follow her adventures on the Faster Than Kudzu blog, check out her website at jocelynjackson.com. Hey, we'd love for you to comment on this podcast and other great content that we're putting together for you on southernspines.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.